Welcome to the GMS Podcast. My name is Jorge M. Sanchez and thank you for tuning in. We have a big uh, jam-packed episode today. We have an exclusive interview with the band Cola. Uh, it is led by Cliff Rawson. Cliff Rawson was a musician guest here on the podcast on episode 35. And he recently released an EP. Uh, the EP is called Great Taste EP. Ah, that's a nice title. It is out now, available at Bandcamp. All you gotta search for is Cola, just like the the soda, and uh, it's there. It's an amazing album. I dig it. I dig it a lot. It's it's definitely uh, something worth checking out. And later on, we our main guest today is a writer. His name is Dave M. Strom. Uh, real okay. This guy is quite a character. He's really interesting. And he has a pretty much an entire world in his head that he uh, he dwells into, and he he makes some amazing stories with the character he creates in that head. And he uh, he's he was kind enough to not just come here on the podcast and talk about his uh, creative process, but he also reads uh, two of his stories, and they're pretty fun. They're amazing. I uh, I I can't say enough about it. If this is your first time listening, thank you for coming on board. You can subscribe to the podcast if you haven't already on iTunes, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. You can follow the JMS podcast on all social media platforms, which is Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Uh, a lot of great contents there that's not shared all around, so it's worth checking out. On top of that, please visit the JMSPodcast.com website. Anything helps. You can donate to the JMS podcast. Help me keep this thing going. We got plenty of more stories. We got plenty of more guests. We got plenty more of great content coming your way. On top of that, I am actively looking for sponsors. I don't want some nationwide product. I want to support the local community here in the San Jose area. So if you have a business of some sort and you want to advertise your business here on the JMS Podcast, please email me at jmspodcast at gmail.com and we can start on that. Bada beam, bada boom. All right. First thing up, let's go to our conversation with Cliff Rawson, his guitarist, and Arnaya. Uh, we went to a undisclosed area in San Jose. I cannot give out where we were at, but I just got to tell you, it was a pretty amazing space. Oh, man, is that fair? No, it's not. But trust me, it was pretty cool where we were at. And throughout the interview, you can hear some squeaking and some noise. That's just his uh, his very cute dog. Uh, uh, the dog was hanging out where we were, and they were, you know, throwing the uh, a toy around. So don't be too distracted now by it. Uh, and uh, yeah, let's go to that right now. I'm here with Cliff Rawson and Aaron Anaya. Cliff Rawson, as you all know, from the band Cola, right? And you guys put out uh, a great album, which I enjoyed a lot. Uh, Thanks. Great Taste. Thank you. Great Taste. It's, yeah, um, Great how, Taste EP, yeah. How did that title for an album come out? Well, we thought it was funny um, and pretentious, like really an absurd thing to say about your own record. That was the first reason. And it just goes with Cola, you know, like, because we like to sell Cola like it like a like a product i feel like we're, we're just kind of like clowning on the man and like and on capitalism a little bit uh, great taste is call a second ep and uh you guys have which is interesting because there's six songs in the ep uh but two of those are interludes right uh which is pretty ballsy 
Uh, what was the choice behind that? Um, just our um, collaborator, Matt, had these beautiful little noise loops, and we wanted to use them, and we're like, hey, this stuff would be, like, good interludes, and we're, I don't know, it's like, um, I mean, we had a lot more of that stuff. We had, like, a whole other piece that was just, just like a noise piece, but... I mean, then it was. Then we figured it was getting pretentious to put too much of that stuff on there, or it just seemed to be out of balance for the record. But um, yeah, we just had the material, and it was something that like a member of the band was like working on, and it was kind of part of our. Seemed to go with the vibe, and just you know, he's part of the band, and so it definitely fitted very well. Like it, oh, cool. in some ways, it prepared me for the next song. Because mm-hmm. uh, not, not only is this uh, EP uh, a little different, or actually quite different yeah. from your first EP, right. uh, what was the choice behind that in, in its di- different musical um, What happened? Well, sound. okay, so with the first demo that I made, it was just me singing and playing acoustic guitar and then recording a bunch of like harmonies and psychedelic guitars and different things, shaking a tambourine or whatever. Um, and I liked how that came out. Um, when we started recording with bass and drums, we went through a period of like, I don't know, where I wasn't really happy with the way the recordings were coming out exactly. They were done very, very quickly. The arrangements were like, you know, three practices and then go in and record it with like a hired gun drummer and, you know, like a studio type um, uh, musician, really excellent drummer. Um, but like, you know, just kind of. I just wound up feeling it was a little slapdash, like a little bit contrived, like, oh, now here's the bass and drum parts, like bassist is going to play some roots and drummer's going to play a simple beat, and it just wound up sounding safe and kind of boring to me. Mm-hmm. Like, I really love those songs, um, but I just, just could, we just couldn't come up with recordings that I was really happy with. So eventually I just stopped trying, after trying a lot. I don't even want to get into how much I tried because I'll... <laughs> it's depressing but we we spent a lot of time like working with that material and just like I was like you know what this is just not working like so um, you know I, I preferred the original uh, incarnation of those songs so um, we just let that stand as the first demo and we said we'll just like do some new stuff so um, yeah we just oh it's like a whole thing like I bought a whole bunch of mics and like an audio um, di- uh, sorry I uh, analog digital converter and and some preamps and basically a bunch of gear because I happen to have access to this big room to record drums in and I have a drum set there and I've been playing drums a lot there so I recorded the drums myself and um, we started writing songs like conceived from the beginning to be like rocks band songs like drum like beats and and like guitar electric guitars and all that stuff like right from the get-go instead of like taking acoustic songs and like trying to turn them into into like whatever like full band arrangements which wasn't working to my taste um so yeah we just like started again and we were using this huge room and my buddy Aaron who's here like comes over and and um he's he's playing lead guitar like a lot of like spacey kind of shoegazy lead guitar on this and you know we're just using the room and making these like enormous Valhalla kind of like drum sounds and, and big guitar sounds and then I started singing like like Perry Farrell from Jane's Addiction a little bit just because it seemed like epic it like felt like Mountain Song or you know something off that first record that was like a live show which is like mm-hmm. the totally their best record um, but anyway yeah so we just kind of went with it and it felt really good and sort of started going off in some other directions that are more sort of reflective of other things I used to do before Cola uh, before the first batch 
like, you know, some sort of like post-hardcore and, and shoegaze and um, post-punk, um, you know, just uh, math rock, emo core, just different kinds of bands I have played in. But uh, yeah, I don't know, all those things were just kind of popping up and, and so we just sort of went with it. Like, the good thing about playing with Aaron, who's um, sort of the, my major collaborator on this record, is that he kind of knows all of those other styles. He knows a lot of styles. <laughs> Um, so, like, I can go left or right or w upside down, and he'll follow me and come up with the part that makes sense, you know, that speaks the language and um, various, you know, rock dialects uh, pretty fluently. So, you know, it's just been a lot of fun just kind of, like, um, just making sounds that make sense to us, you know. Um, and it just came out really different, so we're like, well... Maybe should we have a different name? Should change the name? And I was like, yeah, nah, it's still cool. It's still like, you know, I'm still writing these songs, and I feel like there's enough. And I like the name a lot, so we just kept it. Sorry if anyone's offended. If you like the old music. <laughs> no, but uh, a big difference with this EP in particular is uh, you, you touched upon it, is it feels like it has more production behind it. Uh, right. Because, uh, like you mentioned, the first EP was more acoustic like. Right. And the second one's definitely like gone electric. Uh, but in a good way. Mm. And uh, Aaron, you coming into this project, how did you approach what his vision? Um, well, we actually uh, we actually bonded uh, over like a lot. Of, we we both liked a lot of the same music. Uh, Cliff showed me a band called Serena Manish, and um, he knew I was super into like shoegaze and space rock and all the stuff he, he mentioned. And Cliff, uh, he. He really, he's like a blues guitarist, like he, like he, that's what he's been into, and uh, we wanted to find a way to mesh, and he showed me this band called Serena Manish, and I was like, wow, let's try to make something like this, and we, we made a, a song like it, but then like we ended up just branching out into like all these other different kind of sounds, and uh, yeah. We were thinking of like, blue gaze, we kept saying, <laughs> like bluesy shoegaze and that's what that Serena Manish song has it's got this riff um that's like it's like kind of like that Texas psych kind of kind of like Texas bluesy guitar mixed with shoegaze like um almost like the stones but like a really driving beat <laughs> and so like we tried to do it and we wrote one song like the first song on our EP is kind of like that um Seven Flowers yeah which uh, you tap into some psychedelic stuff. Mm -hmm. Like there's certain portions like this is like almost like Beatlesque. Oh yeah. Oh, that's that's interesting. I hadn't heard that one yet, but I I can see what you mean. Yeah, just like the very trippy kind of spacious guitars and stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know, man. That it feels that one feels like the closest to our original vision of what we wanted to do. Like, but we had that idea to write a song like that, and then I had that riff. And we wrote the song, and it totally worked. And we're like, all right, this is the kind of band we are. Awesome. Let's write a bunch more songs like this. And then we couldn't. We like tried to write another one, and it like, didn't work. It was like something totally different. Right. And then we write another one, and it was something else totally different. Right. And at first, I was like all worried about that. I'm like, this, oh, man, like we can't fucking repeat. Like We're in the massive sophomore slump. You know, but like, actually, all the other songs are awesome too. They're just yeah. really different. So we're like, whatever, man. We don't have to stick to that first one idea that we had. We can do all kinds of songs, and like, we'll just see what kind of band we are based on what kind of songs we write. Again, I think that's why the interludes helped because mm. you you had that space to to like, this is something totally different from right. what the previous song was. Yeah, 
Like, okay, this is a different sound. And then you're introduced to the next song, which itself is different. So I felt like it really helped. And the second song, uh, Laundromatic Hearts, oh, yeah. which is my favorite. Is it? Uh, yeah. Uh, how, how did that song come about? Um, how did that song come about? Wow. I had a, was listening to a lot of Mazzy Star that week. That's true. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's a good, that's a good. Radiohead st- like, sound came to me. I was like, oh, this is amazing. Yeah, I can't remember what we were thinking of. Like, um, well, Cliff had had the original riff. Like, he he wrote that song, and then I was, I just so happened to be screwing around with the slide that particular day. Oh, yeah. And See, then, now I don't hear that slide as Mazzy Star. I hear that as um, like Stonesy, like Keith Richards, kind of like mm. you know that um, uh, Dead Flowers, uh, you know. Uh, whatever that do you, do you ever seen that video where they're they're in from like the 70s and they're all like really sketchy looking singing that song like they all look like they're drunk or, or, or stone or something and like Keith Richards of course looks terrifying right. but they play this like sloppy kind of country blues in the stone sometimes which is just for some reason the coolest fucking thing you know and that's what it sounded like to me like I was like oh the sloppier and more out of tune this is, the better. Like, like seriously, I left those guitars like loud, like too loud and way un, like untuned anything. Because his old guitar had a problem with tuning, yeah, which we that. fixed. But all of that shit was like, it was a mechanical problem with the guitar. Like it was out of, it was sharp on the upper fret. Now but, it shreds. So like a lot of that shit was just out of tune, but it didn't matter. It was like, I actually tried to auto tune parts of it yeah. and I brought it more into tune and it sounded worse. So I took it back out of tune um, because it's just something about the attitude of like sloppy country slide guitar when he was just like first coming up with the parts had this really cool, adds this whole like cool vibe to it. But that's kind of like fundamental blues is you tune the guitar to what sounds you you want to project emotionally. Right. Like uh, sometimes they don't go by the standard tuning, you know, they go by their own tuning. Sure. Some blues players. The out of tuning, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that we're in. But, no, I think that, like, what you're saying is totally true, and it's something that, like, you can forget, you start to forget if you get too professional or, like, too educated, which I am probably both of those things. Like, <laughs> um, and it's like, yeah. you know, it, it, that's what I love about, love about Aaron's guitar is that um, he comes up with parts that I wouldn't come up with uh, because there's a certain like freshness to his approach. He's a lot younger than me. He comes up with parts that are like unblemished by like over like by what happens when you get too professional and you just have ideas. It just it almost like just automatically narrows your idea of what you can do, like what's good to do. You're like, oh well, I know I have to always use this compressor when I'm on stage because it just makes everything sound better or like I need to play these kind of I can't do that I don't want to do that because my experience it's like your experience what they say the brain is hardwired to remember negative experiences more than positive they're like six times as memorable as positive experiences so as you get older you just get more and more conservative there's like no way around it because your brain is just like don't do that don't do that don't do that because I remember when that got fucked up you know when you did that but when you're young you just like fucking do things and like sometimes they sound like shit but um a lot of times this guy for some reason they sound really good and uh and it's stuff that i wouldn't necessarily do anymore you know because i'm not i'm not taking that many risks then um you have the interlude after laundromatic cards and birds forget to fly which is the fourth song oh yeah is, is there a particular story behind that one 
Um, gosh. That is like probably the most negative song on the record. <laughs> 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 Although I feel like the chorus is kind of like a happy chorus, but it's a little bit like lippy. Um, I'm kind of like, I feel like there's a lot of commonality. I, I talk on the record. I think one of the themes of the record is just sort of languishing in a, in a medium sized town, you know, as a, where you feel like you're wasting away after living in a big town. So yeah, I don't know that song is, is sort of a, a more kind of neg- darker reflection on that maybe. And, um, like birds forget to fly is kind of that that's the central image of like you know oh like you take another try my birds forget to fly it's like this sort of like the the feeling of like unavoidable inescapable failure that i think is like i mean isn't there a band name failure like like from that everyone identifies with on this scene like in san jose like this this doom hangs over all of us that they, everyone expects to fail Mm-hmm. Because there's no scene here, you know. Like, I mean, like you're on borrowed time. Well, kind of like just no one ever goes anywhere, and you get stuck here, and no, and it's like you don't have too many examples of success around you. And if they did, they left. You know, if they were successful, then they took off, they moved to Oakland or something, or L.A. or what somewhere. Um, you know, and so a lot of the people that are here just start to get this like expectation of failure, and. And uh, that's kind of what I was uh, singing about. Um, but you know, it's really that really it's unnecessary. And uh, because I know I know this for a fact from living outside of this town that uh, you can be from anywhere. You know, like you don't have to only play in San Jose. If if there's only a few clubs here and they don't like what you're doing or the bands here you don't mesh with you, go play in Oakland. You know, go play in San Francisco. You know, like it's not that far. You know, we used to ride, I used to ride the train 45 minutes to get to work in New York. You know, it's not much, that much further to, to get down to uh, Oakland or something. Like, it, it's totally possible to be um, successful as, as a band here. It's just that the, like, the expectation, you know, it starts to, like, you just like, oh, it's always the same bands, the same people. Like, no one's going anywhere. Like, my life is over. <laughs> kind of same, thing. Like, same old tunes. Yeah, You're yeah. tired of singing all your... Old tunes, yeah. mm-hmm, something like that. So um, you know, just dealing with all those. I think um, you know, laundromatic hearts is a little bit like that too. Like laundromatic, that's the word that I came up with when I was actually living in New York. Just as my as like sort of like a play on illmatic, like Gnosis record. I was like, oh, he's illmatic. I'm laundromatic. Like like I'm domesticated and kind of like just this like you know white dude living in Harlem, like doing my laundry at the laundromat. You know, like kind of trying to check out the culture and, and, and hang, but, like, not tough at all or, like, n- not street at all or, or anything. <laughs> and I just, like, I don't know. Like, it's a, for me, I think of that song as, like, like an affection for, for the every man, you know? Like, Laundromatic Hearts says, I got a love of people. I don't know. It's just, like, I've... It's, like, it's sleepy. It's a sleepy town, and we're all kind of, like, living our domesticated lives. It's not super exciting, but, like it's kind of a warm feeling like I love it when I go down to Cafe Stretch and I know like 25 people there I'm like that's kind of cool you know like and I know the dog that's hanging out at Good Karma because he's like there's a dog smoking pot at Good Karma last night like leaping into the air and like inhaling people's secondhand smoke as well. yeah. I thought that was funny trying to be part of the crowd but yeah I don't know just 
something something nice about San Jose, even though it's, it's a little bit sleepy. So and just all of those feelings, like coming from New York, as a lot of that's in the record. And the last song, "High Up on the Ceiling." Oh yeah. So um, that's kind of directly about smoking pot, I guess. Like from my right. perspective, and like um, I guess it's like not particularly advocating it. Um, although it's just sort of describing the type of like paranoid like second sight that you think that you have when you're high and not that you necessarily don't sometimes you have interesting insights I, I think um, but like uh, it's like in the isolation just the way that I feel like at a party if, if I'm high or something you know is like it's kind of exhilarating and you feel like sometimes like you're having wonderful insights or something but it's also a little bit like limited or, or and isolating or something like that. So, um, yeah. It's also the Jane's Addiction kind of inspired one. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah. Yeah, no, the, um, the high vocals and like, I don't know where the, I feel like the end of that song is kind of like, almost like emo core or something like in like a sunny day real estate way or like, I don't know who else would play that. Like actually, the certain strain of emo that I used to be involved in in Boston, like in the mid late nineties, which is sort of a, a riff on Sunday day real estate, but it was maybe a little bit different than that. To be honest, it's more like quoting some of those bands that, that I played in or knew of, or my friends were in, um, this sort of way of building drama <laughs> into like beats and things. And, and we have this like ending on that song. that's like kind of like <laughs> classic, like, cliffhanger ending like this feels like a you know like emo is super dramatic but like some of that shit's really good and you know it's been so like maligned for so long but but now I feel like you can kind of if you do it smart you can bring it back in and I mean what does that mean anyway like people call Fugazi emo you know um, there's a lot of like good bands that are have been called that so mm-hmm. um, yeah I don't know it's just, just kind of playing around all of those songs with different styles and different sounds and they sort of came together, and then eventually we kind of figured out what they were about. And weirdly enough, there's some like thematic connection between the songs, like in the lyrics. Although they were certainly not like you know conceived to be that way, <laughs> they just kind of came out that way. Um, so that's kind of it's kind of cool. I only actually realized some of the connections the first time I listened to it in my, in my car. Um, I was like, oh yeah, this kind of hangs together. Cool. Give it the old-fashioned car test. Yeah, yeah. I mean, because I get... I So anyway, we recorded it, and we mixed it ourselves. Really? Yeah. Oh, wow. Um, so that process is just, like, so, like, looking at yourself in the mirror for, like, five days straight. Mm-hmm. It's, like, soul-crushing, you know? You're, like, you hate yourself <laughs> by the end of it. I mean, it's, like, really hard to do. Like, especially mixing your own voice. Mm-hmm. Like, you're just kind of, like you know, like, is holding a magnifying glass up to these really, like, sort of intimate parts of yourself, and you're just kind of like, oh, God. Like, that feeling that you get when you hear your own voice, and you're like, oh, shit, that's me. So, anyway, but, um, yeah, so I had heard it a zillion times already by the time I put it in my car, but for some reason, I think it was after we mastered I sent it away to get mastered by my friend Carl Saff, um, who's a great mastering engineer I've worked with in the past, and so it took about a week to get back to me. So I think I had a little break. And then I put it on once in my car. And I was like, oh, cool. I kind of hear that this is a record. And it kind of sticks together in certain ways that I wasn't expecting. And that's cool. 
and now I never have to listen to it again. <laughs> so like I don't, I'm not one of those guys that like to listen to my own music. But we actually, we've been having fun lately playing the songs. Like we, we're starting to put together. Like I said, like I played the drums and the bass and the rhythm guitar, and I sang on it. And Aaron played lead guitar, and then we had um, uh, a good friend of mine play uh, the trumpet. My my buddy Peter played some keyboard. Matt did some noise guitar and did the interludes. But mostly, I played a lot of the instruments. Um, so now we're kind of like fleshing out the band again. Um, we've got a new drummer. Uh, it's got James Meter um, from up in Oakland, who's a really good drummer. Uh, he's been working. I worked with him in a band called Snakeskin um, for a while. It's awesome uh, singer-songwriter from New York City. Um, uh, Aaron was in that band too. Uh, so we got a new drummer, um, and we're kind of fleshing out the band. We got a couple tours coming up. Um, West Coast in August and Europe in December, so we're trying to put together like a band to. I'm trying. We're, we're in the process right now of trying to find like the people that really love this music and want to do it. Like you got to perform it live. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it's like we've had some good jams with our drummer and and um, uh, my buddy Kevin Hall, who's playing some bass, it sounded great. So. I mean, we're still trying to figure it out because the touring is demanding. You know, like it's like almost a month in December in Europe, and then uh, it'll be like two and a half weeks in August. So it's really hard to find people who can do that. <laughs> you know, um, but we're, our label, um, Snafu Family, um, does a lot of show trades and touring. Um, the bands in that on that label do a lot of touring up and down the West Coast. So I, you know, hopefully a lot of our friends through the label will be helping us out to find some good shows. How do you prepare for a like a, like the Pacific tour compared to the European tour? Do you, do you think you're prepared for that? Well, yeah, I mean, we have to we have to like be good at playing our songs. That would be the first thing. Uh, so hopefully while being sleep deprived, right? Yeah. Jet lagged. Uh, you know, actually, um, that's a whole thing, but like European touring, European DIY touring is not really essentially any different than DIY touring in America um, and if anyone is interested <laughs> I should probably write a book because I feel like bands just don't know and there's no way you would know like I went there the first time with another band called New Idea Society playing the bass and I just took notes about how everything worked when I, went, I got email addresses I figured out how much petrol costs I figured out what happens at the borders you know, I figured out what, how it works in the venues, what kind of guarantees they give, how... I just thought about it, figured out how to do it. And it's not really that different. But you just would never know. If you had never done it, if you'd never seen it, you might think, oh, well, what if they stop me at the border and take all my merch? I don't know, what's the border like crossing into the Czech Republic? You know, you have to go there to realize they don't stop you anywhere. <laughs> and I hope that doesn't change with Brexit and the rightification of the whole world. Right. But from what I understand right now, it's still wide open in the continental Europe. Um, and, uh, yeah, so it's not really that different. You just, there's plane tickets up front. Um, you have to borrow a, a kit at every show. Um, and, you know, bring your own snare and cymbals. We usually borrow a bass cab. So you, you travel a little lighter. Um, and you have to do a little bit more organizing to make sure the other bands bring you the stuff that you don't have to every show. You're relying on the local bands, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, local bands that we would contact, you know, Bandcamp works over there, um, MySpace back in the day. <laughs> I don't know. I think it's, maybe people still do that in Europe. I don't know. 
Um, I actually have not. The, the thing is that my my contacts in Europe now have sort of moved forward in their lives. So like people that were just in cool bands like in 2011 are now like you know um, booking agents or they work for a label or their their band did really well so they have good pull you know and like my buddy Arnaud was in this band called Billions of Comrades um, in Brussels and I was like he was like you know I sent him the the, the record he's like oh I love this record why don't you come to Belgium I'll set, set you up with four great shows you know and like he used to have connections, man. Yeah, networking. Yeah, like he he does the whole country for us. Like it used to be, I had to get all like he might I might get one show from a friend, and then this other band in um, Prague is like, yeah, we're on this label now. We'll just get our label to help, and we'll do a week out here. I was like, really cool. That's like six shows I don't have to book. You know, <laughs> whatever. It's like easier um, than it used to be, but you can do it the old-fashioned way. You can just you can go cold play a country in Europe and just by being from America you're automatically special and they expect you to be good yeah so that's a big advantage no like because most people when they walk into just a random bar and some bands playing they just expect the band to suck like I don't know um I might have been guilty of that once or twice myself because you know just like most bands are not that great like most bands you know like your friends bands usually I mean my friends bands are pretty good because they're all musicians right but you know if you're just like Joe Average like you're you know just some some friend of yours doing it for a hobby is in a band right like you go and you're probably going to be polite and maybe there's like a really good drum part or drummer or something or something good about the band but usually it's not like your favorite music just on average Mm -hmm. and so people have that expectation when you play a show or when they see you at a show but if you're in another country (laughs) they're like whoa there must be something good about this band they must have their shit together and a lot of it is just you know like so if you are actually pretty good, you know, then it helps because they're, they're expecting it, and then you can deliver, and then it's a done deal. They, you just made five new fans, like, you know, so. Aaron, do you want to weigh in on the tour? The, do you feel like you're prepared for it? Are you excited for it? Or are you I, ner- nervous? <clears throat> no, I'm super, I'm super excited. Uh, I, uh, it's uh, far enough uh, in the, out in the year that uh, I feel like I'll have adequate time to prepare and then you know cliff's cliff has the experience so he'll kind of guide me along the way have you toured before no i've never toured i've never even like this is like first like record i've really ever been on (laughs) 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 this is yeah i'm I'm really excited uh it's an amazing opportunity <laughs> awesome man so it's a great ep it's available out on Bandcamp. is there anywhere else people can check it out mm, nope not right now <laughs> not right now just on Bandcamp. it's a it's cola rock uh dot bandcamp dot com that'll take you to our page and you'll see the record there but yeah i mean we should have it up on uh itunes and all that pretty soon we like i said we just signed with this awesome little label called snafu family John and the Rivers are on there and some other really amazing bands. Um, and they're helping us get a lot of that stuff organized and helping us set up the West Coast tour. And um, we're going to have cassettes soon and um, probably some CDs. Wow, cassettes? Yeah. Well, why, why cassettes? Well, does it come with a cassette uh, recorder? Any chance? <laughs> like... It comes with a download <laughs> code. So you can also download it to your computer. But it's just like, you know. To own, to have to have like a physical item to hold is just kind of nice. 
like I obviously would like to do vinyl, but it's expensive. So we're gonna start with cassettes, um, and I'll probably like I'll probably have a hundred CDs as well, like with some homemade artwork type thing. Um, record release parties Friday, March twenty fourth at the Ritz. Um, we're playing with Container, and most likely Mother's Worry. Um, and we're still looking for a uh, fourth band. Um, we're talking to a couple of bands. Cliff and Aaron, thank you for taking the time to talk with me about your the EP. Uh, best of luck. All right. Thank you. Thanks, man.
And there you have it. That song is straight out of the Great Taste EP by Cola, now available on Bandcamp. It is called Laundromatic Hearts. It's my favorite song out of the album, and uh, I hope you dug it. And uh, don't forget to also check out Cola's first show at The Ritz on March 24th. This is the first show uh, you know, where they're playing songs from this EP. So again, at The Ritz in downtown San Jose, March 24th. And uh, go to the uh, Cola fan page on Facebook to stay on top of it. Bada beam, bada boom. All right, moving on to our main interview with Dave M. Strom. Um, I know I'm saying it with an accent, uh, Strom. I'm pretty sure pronounced it differently more. The thing is, that I had a roommate with a, a Swedish. I had a Swedish roommate in college, and he had me speaking a bit of Swedish. So every time I see a Swedish word, my my mouth automatically makes an accent to it. So I'm sure he pronounced it by Strom. Strom. See, Strom. There we go. But with it, you know. But my Swedish roommate memories is Strom. All right. <laughs> that was kind of dumb. I'm sorry, listeners. But let's definitely move on to our interview with Dave M. Strom. Uh, he is a brilliant writer. You can check him out at local open mics here in the South Bay. I know he regularly performs at the Red Rock open mic on Monday nights in downtown Mountain View. Uh, he speaks about it briefly in the interview. But, um, but yeah, and uh, towards the end of the interview, he, uh, he performs. Uh, I say performs because he definitely performs. But technically, he reads two of his stories, and they're funny as hell. So let's, uh, let's go on with our interview with Dave M. Strom. Like um, it's weird. I feel like January passed by way too fast. Ah, that's what's going on in the world. We're getting all kinds of crazy stuff, and frankly, I've created a character based on Trump. Now we can talk about that during podcasts, but oh, we're recording. Friends of mine, we're, we're recording now. Uh, yeah. So, well. so, who's this Trump character? Well, I've created a character named Billington Stumpfinger, whose uh, power is he eats money, and the higher the denomination, the more powerful he gets. However, if he eats money from another country or even another dimension, all his power is reset down to zero. So is he a villain or is he oh, a protagonist? A okay. Absolutely a villain. I mean, <laughs> he, he's a fun character because... The guy he's based on is such a loud kind of guy, you know, kind of a character himself. And and friends of mine were emailed me saying, "Dave, you've got to make a villain based on Donald Trump." And I hadn't even thought of that, but I did have a villain named Money Man, and I just tweaked the personality and the looks a bit, and it's had an effect on my uh, storylines. In that, this guy's going to have to become president in my <laughs> in my stories. Because I always wanted to write a uh, Civil War type novel, which uh, I have the basic ideas. I haven't outlined it yet, but uh, it would be kind of a Civil War slash cowboy theme for my superhero and Holly to slug her way through. Okay, so he, he's, he it's a character that exists in the universe of Holly. 
Yes, yes, okay. yeah. All my stories are based in Holly's universe. Uh, maybe I should tell everybody who Holly is. We could start there or for sure. How, uh, how it started was uh, many years ago. Um, there was a book came that came out called The Da Vinci Code by Dan Brown. Yeah, by Dan Brown. And my, you know, I'm kind of the uh, logical, scientific. Uh, Mr. Spock type guy in the family or as my brother my older brother would say Sheldon Cooper of the family and um, my younger brother just underneath me is the more spiritual guy in the family and he knows the history mm-hmm. so you're in the middle I'm well I'm the second oldest I have three brothers oh, okay Anyhow, my brother Roger ha- has a copy of the book. It, we are we're all gathered together for Christmas. He says, "This is ridiculous. This book. I mean, I mean, the the history didn't go this way. Charlemagne didn't do this." La da 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 da. I said, "Really? Can I have a look at that book?" He said, "Sure." He handed it over, and I opened it up. I thought, "This is ridiculous." The guy who shot, who got shot, he says a voice was chillingly close, but the guy who said who spoke to him is 15 feet away behind iron bars. That's not chillingly close. That's 15 feet away behind iron bars. So you're you're criticizing Dan Brown as a writer. Well, as the writing. But I have to give him Dan Brown credit that he wrote that bestseller and he knew to write short chapters, oops, short chapters with cliffhanger endings. But then he kept telling me how evil the guy was. No, have him do something evil. Oh, finally, he shot him. Okay, well, it's about time. <laughs> but uh, I started writing a satire of that, chapter by chapter, and it just didn't go very well because other people were doing that and doing it a lot better. And then I always hated in the movies and stories when the female character cringes in the corner while the bad guy beats up the hero. And next to her hand is a gun, or a rifle, or a club, or a knife, or a shotgun, or something, and she just cringes. And I thought, no, my female character is going to slug somebody right in the mouth. That's how Holly kind of stepped up and took over the books, took over my stories. I used to call her Holly Grail. Ha ha ha. Well, I decided I wasn't going to go with that anymore. Now her name's just Holly Hansen. And she's the Superman of my universe. She has super strength, super, you know, flight, and a form of telekinesis that allows her to lift big, heavy things. Because think about it. Superman lifts, say, something really huge, maybe a great big boat, right? And he's lifting it with these tiny little human-sized hands. How is he going to do that? It's not a matter of how strong he is. It's how is he going to grip it. Right. (laughs) So I started uh, writing the book, um, the comic book code, which I was still working on up to this day. But I started writing a series of short stories because I wanted to sharpen my writing style. I published uh, Super Bad Hair Day on Kindle. And then on my website, which is davemstrom.wordpress.com, you can find links to other stories I have in local anthologies. So... Holly, I wanted to be kind of tall, strong, short-tempered because Superman's such a boy scout. He's, okay, I won't beat you up. I'll take you to jail. No, Holly will want to slug him in the mouth before she takes him to jail because she loses her temper. Mm -hmm. And it's fun to write about a character who you can push their buttons and make them do something funny and sometimes stupid. 
So not, not only is she the opposite of the generic female characters, uh, but she's also the opposite of, of, a, of, a, of a righteous hero where once in a while her emotions gets you know through the through and yeah. she and she, oh, and, and she does her actions through her emotions now uh were there any other uh, characters that that you put into holly uh i have a character opposite her her well uh, to put it bluntly her her love interest I had a character who I tried to base on that guy uh, from the Da Vinci Code. What's the name? Uh, Robert Langdon. Yeah, mm-hmm. he's a symbologist. Say that once. Symbologist. What does that even mean? <laughs> Nobody has that real profession. How do you make money at that? But that's what he was. Well, I tried to come up with a profession for him, and it just wasn't working. And People were asking me, is this guy a robot? Because he was too robotic, too much like Mr. Spock. Did nothing but calculations, although he had a more tender side sometimes. And the ladies in my critique group said, oh, Holly and this guy make a perfect couple. And I thought, okay, I'm going to make him the love interest. And then a few years ago, movie critic Roger Ebert passed away. And I thought, yes. That will be his link to humanity. He will have started before he gets his abilities. He starts out as a movie critic who writes like Roger Ebert. And he became a lot more human after that. (laughs) (laughs) Which is interesting considering some consider consider movie critics as subhuman. Uh, But you see a humanity Uh, in that. Well, yeah. Well, that's in the... um, I'm a comic book geek and a lot of comic book geeks will say... Movie critics don't like anything. You know, Cisco and Ebert hated Star Wars. They love Star Wars. You can look it up. But if you find a lot of comic book geeks, you won't be able to convince them of that. So, how long have you been in this world of comic books? I've been uh, toying with the stories, teaching myself to uh, write a decent story. Hmm. You're self-taught. Ever, ever since I'm self-taught, yeah, I never really took a class in it. Hmm. I've been. I'm in three uh, local writing clubs: the uh, California Writer Club. I'm in the Fremont branch, the South Bay branch, and the Peninsula branch. You could just go to CWC South Bay, CWC Peninsula, or CWC Fremont, and you can find out the details for those clubs. They meet once a month, and I recommend to anybody who wants to write hmm. go it- to one of those meetings. How does it work? Like, do you guys meet up at a cafe, or do you guys meet up? And, and what what are the discussions like in these meetings? Generally, they have uh, they're about two hour meetings, and uh, the first part of the meeting will be uh, oh business, uh, any accomplishments from the people, um, any new members, any people here for the first time, kind of like what happens at a lot of meetings, and then. Uh, There'll be a break, and then they'll have their speaker. Maybe it'll be somebody, a poet laureate, a local local poet laureate, or there'll be a a guy who tells you how do you write description, or what is point of view. I'd like to pause here and talk about point of view. Sure. When you're right, is when I first wrote my stories, I did something rotten and nasty that you really shouldn't do very often if you're a writer. Head hopping. You know what head hopping is? What is that? Suddenly, I'm writing one character and telling you what they're thinking, and then in the next paragraph, I'm talking. I'm in the head of another character and telling you what they're thinking, 
Mm-hmm. And then another path, paragraph, I'm telling you a third character, no, at least for every scene, pick one point of view character and stay in their head. Very interesting, yeah. Because otherwise you're jerking the reader all over the place. Now, Tolkien got away with a little head hopping, but, you know, Tolkien was Tolkien and most people aren't him. The guy invented his own language for crying out loud. Yeah, for Pete's <laughs> sake. You know, if you're a writer, you know, you got to learn to walk before you can run. Right. See, that's an interesting notion. Me, as a writer, I, I, I'm very insecure about those decisions when I write. I, I mostly do screenwriting uh, because oh, cool. I, I find that to be, a, a, I mean, it's still hard in its own uh, uh, merits, but still, I, I have to think of it more visually. You know, I can't say what this character is saying. I have to show it visually. And for me, that helps a lot because when I try my sort of novel writing, I'm always in that indecision of like, all right, how descriptive should I be about her, this character's feelings or the thought process behind this character and, and, and what the other character... And then I start feeling like, you know what? What's even interesting to the reader to know in this situation? Absolutely. So I find myself in a, in a lot more uh, difficult journey when it comes to novel writing. And that's something that I've always looked up to other novel writers. It's like, man, how do they just plow right through it and make the pretty good decisions? And, and like you said, like head hopping. It's the first time I learned of that notion right now, but it totally makes sense. Uh, did you ever have uh, those insecurities when you started writing? Yeah, I remember one chapter I'd written. It was... Uh kind of a turning point when I was trying to do that uh, Da Vinci Code thing and I decided I didn't want to do that anymore so I went to the end of the book and I had Super Holly face four super villains at once like John Wayne as Rooster Cogburn facing the four villains at once I have since in the story upped it to facing about 100 supermen at once that's going to be a very big fight scene kind of like Neo fighting Agent Smith's right but, uh, okay, this was something during a podcast. I lost my train of thought temporarily. What was the question again? <laughs> like, like, how do you approach not only just character building, but world building? And how, how do you figure out uh, when to pull back the head, hop, head hopping? That scene there, in particular, when I wrote that, I realized that I was hopping from different, char- different characters' heads to different characters' heads, and I shouldn't do that. I was hopping into Holly's head, and then to the villain's head, and then into these characters, the two dudes who are kind of like butthead and butthead. They're they're fun because they're just absolutely stupid, and doing their voices is, uh, like, hi, Holly, can we, uh, sit next to you? <laughs> oh, like Beavis and Butthead. Yeah, well, I, when they started, they were exactly that, and I since toned them down to just two really dumb dudes that you'll find in the back of almost every classroom in every high school in America, you know. <laughs> but um, I also wrote another scene where she had a big fight scene, and I showed it to my barber, and he read it, and he said, Dave, what does she look like? And I realized I hadn't really described that. You, you gotta give the character, like you said, some description and so forth. You gotta... You know, if you got to build the world, you got to describe it a little bit. If you're going to talk about world building also, I also started in the real world, naming the actual cities, the San Diego Comic Con. That's kind of where my first novel is based, but I realized I didn't want to call that anymore because then I'm not free to do whatever I want with it. So I did the DC Comics thing, and uh, 
where, look, you know Gotham City is really Chicago. You know Metropolis is really New York. I have Seaside City. That's San Diego. That's my big city there. Hmm. And Holly lives in a smaller town up north. Surfville. Remember Superman grew up in Smallville? Right. Yeah. She grew up in Surfville. Mm-hmm. Is that like Big Sur area? Uh, no, it's uh, more like uh, the city of Encinitas, which uh, I had a friend who lived out there, and I used to visit him. Oh. <laughs> really love that little town. But anyway, uh, so I, I, I'm going to go from the beginning. When, when did writing took an interest in you to to the point where you really considered publishing something? It came uh, when you can get out on Kindle and anybody can get on Kindle and I realized I don't have to go through the process of parading myself in in front of a bunch of publishers who probably aren't going to understand a lot of my work because I write in a very Stan Lee comic book type style. I will put sound effects words into my writing for Pete's sake. I'll use a lot of exclamation points. I don't think a lot of those guys would be too fond of that. I'd rather kind of get my toe in the water and self-publish to start out and see how that goes. But you know what's wonderful about Kindle is anybody can can self-publish. What's bad about Kindle is everybody can self-publish. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so the, you know there's garbage out there, but there's also some gems out there that are quite wonderful. I'm. Uh, but do do you feel like in your are you looking for a pen of some kind? I was gonna grab my phone, but maybe we can come back to this. I was there's uh, some stories I've read. I might just put them on my website again. But there's one uh, heroin complex. I can't remember the name of the writer, but I've read a couple of books by her. Or this is the second one I'm reading, and she she writes a superhero in comic book type themes and. Hmm. Uh, do you ever uh, written that's something that's outside of the comic book uh, theme? Right now, no. I'm comfortably staying in my little universe. Although I will write on my uh, blog, I'll do blog posts, but I prefer that they be related to my to what I'm doing. So I'm not going to put on political posts like you know you go on Facebook nowadays and there's always a whole you know there's just stuff with politics and you know I, I have strong opinions on it but I don't want to get involved in that I want to spend my energy writing in my universe I remember there's a columnist many years ago in Chicago uh, Mike Royko just the best damn newspaper columnist I've ever read he died about 20 years ago and I still miss the guy but uh People would try to get him to do a lot of interviews. He didn't do that very much. He'd just say, he kind of talked like this too, I've got a column. If I've got something to say, I'll say it in the column. And I want to reach the point where I can say, if I've got something to say about what's going on in the world, I'll say it in my stories. <laughs> and, you know, with a guy like, you know, I hate to get back to Trump, but he, he provides so much material that I don't think I'll be, you know, short of anything to write about. <laughs> Now, I want to go further back. Where, where were you born and raised? I was born in a small town called Hillmar in the Central Valley, a dairy community. And uh, it's about 20 miles south of Modesto. Oh. Yeah. What, what was, uh, was your uh, parents into the dairy uh, industry? My father was an insurance broker. 
because uh, you know people out there need insurance right and he was very good at it and started up a business so uh, kept food on the table and sent us kids to college and got us educated well so and by Modesto right Modesto, uh, I was in high school just when uh, at the end of what, you know, the cruising phase, like you, like they had an American graffiti. That meant a lot to us because cruising around in Modesto, that's kind of what some of us did in high school when we wanted to go out on Friday night. Yeah. Yeah, that's something, because uh, George Lucas grew up around that area. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what were, were you writing at a young age? I would write stories in high school, and I'd try to write. I, I wrote some silly letters to the editor, like uh, when the Mercury News was still something. I wrote a couple letters to the editor that got silver pen awards when they used to do that sort of thing. You know, if they want people to read their paper, they ought to reward them like that again. They ought to think about that. I wrote one letter that they turned into a column, actually, and uh, paid me for it, and it was some incident I had on the road where somebody came and spit on my window and uh, I thought yeah I hope he comes back and spits again I could use another 75 bucks <laughs> <laughs> and you ever considered because you were sending letters to a uh, newspaper uh, the reporting ever come into your mind no not really I just don't have the I thought about writing a column of some type but you know now with blogs anybody can write a column hmm. and is uh, that good or bad do you think i think it's fine i i think you know can people get out there and say what they want you know say what they want to say as long as they're not hurting anybody i think it's just fine because I, I i think there's a phenomenon now where people are really uh misinterpreting a lot of blogs as as news or as as factual reporting yeah, well, you know, you could blame the that, but uh, I look at the people and say, guys, you know, humanity, we need to think. We need our filters, and we can't have everything spoon-fed. You know, we you have to put some thought into what you're reading and what you're doing. Hmm. You can't just listen to somebody screaming on the street or screaming in a blog and immediately believe everything they say just because it happens to... Uh, strike a chord with you right right now sorry I, I, I leaped forward to a tangent no because you mentioned you grew up in Modesto <laughs> what kind of books were you reading or what kind of, what kind of comic books oh. what was the hangout spot over there for, for someone who's in, interested in comic books as you were well there weren't a lot of uh, comic books I can go to the drugstore and pick up comic books but my, as far as my reading goes I read a lot of science fiction I read a lot of Asimov Arthur C. Clarke uh, later on, when I got into college, I read more Larry Niven, but I read a lot of science fiction as a kid. Where'd you go to college at? There's a college out in Chicago, kind of a family tradition. We went out there because my parents were from out there, and um, I went there for four years. And then uh, after that, I realized I was a math major, and I realized I'm not going to be able to do anything with this. So I talked to my dad and let me go to Cal Poly in San Luis Obispo for a while and take computer science classes. And what's interesting is when I was out there, at the same time, there was this tall, uh, red-headed guy, uh, Weird Al Yankovic, who was just getting his start uh, in music when I was going there. He was an architecture major at the same time. I didn't know him, but we all got to see him uh, get his start. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. That's interesting. Actually, and when you saw him, did you like notice, like, yeah, there's something about this guy that's going to make it big? 
everybody noticed that about him. They knew he was going to make it big because his songs were, were getting on the radio at the time. He was just got some songs, uh, My Bologna and Another One Rides the Bus, were on the Dr. Demento show and getting national airtime. <laughs> so we knew he was going somewhere. So what's after Cal Poly? I'd like to say that I actually did meet him once. Can I tell a quick story? Oh, go for it. Yeah, I was. We were all, uh, you know, there were four of us living in kind of this, you know, small uh, townhouse. You know, we rented. You know, each had our own bedroom and so forth. And uh, one guy worked at the local radio station. For some reason, we got we had this big chunk of ice, about two square feet of ice, and we didn't know what to do with it. And I said, hmm. Why don't we give it to Weird Al? Yeah. And one guy knew where Weird Al lived because he was a DJ there and he knew him. So at this time uh, on Saturday Night Live, it was just a few years after they had the characters, the Coneheads, and I had built a Conehead costume in college. So I would glue it to my head and I've got this tall, bald Conehead type costume. You know, like I've got this enormous head with no, you know, with no hair. And we went to Weird Al's place. You know, it's on the second floor. You have to go upstairs. And the two guys that were with me said, Dave, we're not going up there with you. So I went up the stairs, knocked on the door. Guy answers. I held it out and I spoke like the, you know, Beldar Conehead. You know, Dan Aykroyd played crystallized dihydrogen oxide for Weird Al. He nods. He smells. Yeah, Al's going to want to see this. Hey, Al. I stepped inside, and this tall guy comes out with this, you know, kind of almost afro of red hair. It's Weird Al, and he's kind of laughing, and I'm laughing. I handed it over crystallized dihydrogen oxide for Weird Al. He laughs. He takes it. He says, I'll treasure it always. (laughs) 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 I'd like to meet him and tell him I'm that guy if I ever saw him again. It's kind of unlikely. but. Uh, Oh, man. So what happened after after Cap Holly? You weren't writing anything besides sending. I, we continued to send letters to the editors at this point. Yeah, I, well, I did write. I wrote a few letters to the editor to the uh, newspaper, uh, the campus newspaper um, that they printed and they liked. Then I wrote some letters to the editor that they liked, uh, but it just faded in and out because you know, trying to get past the. Uh, snooty New York publishing houses, you know, I just didn't see myself going through that kind of process. So I would write columns, I'd write a, try to write a story or two, it never really went anywhere, nothing really hit until that Da Vinci Code thing came up. Hmm. And I found this little niche, this little comic book universe I've created that uh, I can build on and I can keep writing stories about. Well, it's great what you're doing because you're you're writing some some very funny stuff. Which uh, comedy is a big thing in your in your writing. Absolutely, um, because the, the, there was much as I love uh, Alan Moore's story uh, Watchmen. It was just one of the greatest <laughs> stories of all time. You know, yeah. it, Time Magazine rated it. You know, one of the best 100 novels of the past century or so. But it's kind of grim and gritty, and even Alan Moore said, you know, why does everything have to get like this? You know? <laughs> and I said, I want to put some laughs back into the business, so that's why I write the way I write. Although I have had stories of very sad endings. Hmm. But another thing I, I like about your work is that you uh, manage to uh, translate this into a performance art. 
Yes, uh, that started at uh, Red Rock uh, Coffee uh, years ago. Uh, I was making short little videos, which you can see out on YouTube. Um, I should I should put a link to it on my website. But uh, I would actually set up my computer and a TV and whatever there and play that. And after a while, the guy said, Dave, that's just taking too long. It takes some of the air out of the room when you're doing this. And I thought, well, I'm starting to write stories. How about I perform them there? And they said, fine. And I started you know, performing chapters from the uh, upcoming novel, The Comic Book Code. And it went over pretty well the first time, so I've been with that ever since. Well, that's how I met you. I met you at Red Rock. You're performing. And i got to yeah. admit, when you went up there, I'm going to read a chapter from your book. I'm like, oh, okay, what's going to happen? You know, I've never seen this before. <laughs> On top of that, you added music. I'm like, okay. Uh, and and for the, a minute, I was trying to still register what was going on, but you just you know you wrote, it was so interesting and it was it meshed so with the music that I really got involved into your storytelling, and it was like one of the best experiences I had at Red Rock because I'm like you really pulled it off. Wow, thank you. And do you feel like uh, that in, in some way improved your writing, knowing that some of your writing will be you know be told to a crowd? There is a difference in writing for the page and writing for a crowd in that writing for a crowd sometimes might be a little closer to uh, script writing. There's a story I have right here. I might read part of that while we're here if we have time called The Malevolent Mystery Meet and it's two little boys, uh, you know, the fourth and second grade who have super puppy powers. And they rescue Holly from the evil lunch ladies, the school cafeteria lunch ladies. And when I turned it in uh, to the uh, writer club, they said, you know, if you hadn't read this, you know, it might not have won because they felt that the, you know, just playing on the page, there wasn't quite enough there. But when I performed it for them, it kind of came to life. So I, I think that when you're writing on the page, you're going to be a little bit more doing a little bit more of the internal monologue, whereas if you write a script, you're not doing much in the way of internal monologue at all. You're, you're telling actions and dialogue. And did that play a part in the evolution of your writing? Yeah. Um, my writing does seem to lend itself to being read fairly easily. And uh, some people have said that some of my writing is a bit script-like, so I have to watch that and try to get, you know, make sure I do a, enough of the mental dialogue inside the person's head to uh, make it pleasing when it's on the printed page. Well, okay. Uh, and how do you go about creating more adventures for this character? Like, what, what inspires you to, to create villains and conflicts and... Because uh, I feel there'll be a certain point that I would just run out of ideas of where, where to put this character. And usually that's why they have a writer's room. We have several heads. But in this case, it's you writing several adventures. Yeah, and I'll, I'll tell you, I don't think I'm ever going to run out of ideas for this character. Because uh, there's always something goofy going on in the world that I can do a take on. I've already mentioned that one guy. You know, I don't see any reason to keep talking about him. But there'll be things that happen to me. There'll be things that happen in the world that I'll just do a story on. And then there'll be uh, 
for the local riding clubs, they say, okay, uh, we're doing another edition of Fault Zone, that's the Peninsula Riding Club, puts that out once in a while, and they'll have a particular theme, like this year's theme is Uplift. Write a theme about Uplift, and I thought, well, how about Holly uh, gets a swelled head and starts getting a little bit more, yes, I am a hero, I am this big important person, and she goes up, 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 and then something happens at the story that just makes her fall and land flat on her back, right down back to reality on Earth. That's Sounds this, very uplifting. Yeah, it's where I got to write one of my very sad endings. <laughs> <laughs> how, how big is the writing scene here in, in the Bay, South Bay area? There's uh, the uh, South Bay Writers Club. That's pretty big. And then there's also... Uh, these uh, meetups called Shut Up and Write where people get together at coffee shops and so forth and they just sit and they write. They shut up and they write. I used to go to those. I don't do that so much anymore. I do a lot of my writing sitting at home with my laptop in my lap. Although occasionally I'll go to a coffee shop and write there as well. That's how I started a lot of my stories is at coffee shops. Holly uh, likes coffee too. I put a lot of my taste, my opinions, and my flaws into her. Okay, makes her easier to write. <laughs> how how connected is she to you personally? Like, how much of your st in you do you put in her? Uh, a lot. <laughs> she's Scandinavian. She's Swedish. She likes the food I like. Oh, uh, are you Swedish? Yes, oh, I'm 100%. Cool. Yeah, although I don't speak a word of the language. Oh, man. What part of Sweden is your family from? Uh, darn if I know. <laughs> it's my, my brothers are the ones who would know that better than me. I, I, I don't really follow the genealogical trees or anything. But that makes sense because you mentioned that your family's from the Chicago area, right? My mom and dad were yeah. uh, from that general area. My dad was from Minnesota, I believe, and my mom was in Chicago, and uh, they, they met in Chicago. Right. Because th there was a huge uh, Swedish immigration back in the day oh, in Minnesota. Yes. Yeah, 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 that makes sense now. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I can't wait to write a couple of Minnesotan-type characters, like, you know, and, the, and they would talk like the characters in Fargo, don't you know? Yeah. <laughs> you know, because I found in Minnesota, I went to go visit them once, and, and I, I heard an accent, but I'm not sure... I didn't really hear it. Like it was, it was, I don't know. Maybe, maybe even in Minnesota, there's different regions that have that accent. But I, I didn't really hear it. W what part of Minnesota is your is your family from? I couldn't tell you that either. Like I said, I, I just was born and raised by my mom and dad, but don't know exactly what uh, part of Minnesota he was from. I just remember that they met in Chicago. He went to North Park and. So that that's the name of the college I went to. North Park. Yeah. Huh. Interesting. In math, right? That's yeah, I was a, yeah, I was a math major. It, it was a college and a, a seminary too. It's. A, oh, are you? Are you? Did you come from a religious background? Well, I came from a. I would say the closest thing is a Lutheran type background. So when I listen to Garrison Keeler, I really get a kick out of that because it kind of speaks to some of my background too. They talk about Norwegian bachelor farmers. I don't know if we had too many of those, but my uh, grandfather uh, was a minister in my hometown, and he still had the Swedish accent. 
Is there anything so. you is there anything you picked up from from your grandfather? Do you think? Well, because when you're a minister in our, in our family, everybody knew how to do a phony uh, Swedish accent, and I've written that in the stories. Oh, I should mention one thing I did some years ago was I I haven't printed these yet, but I wrote a bunch of comic book scripts and had and I paid some uh, artists to illustrate them, and that's where I wrote a story called. Uh, I really need to get this out on Kindle or something called Strum Trek, where I play the captain of a starship, and uh, they, you know, and we fight uh, the Bjorg, kind of Swedish Borg. Their ship is like a giant Swedish meatball with two Viking horns coming out of it, and they take over people by making them eat lutefisk and get really depressed and mournful. <laughs> it's, it sounds Scandinavian yeah. for sure. <laughs> yeah, that's. Uh, Ludafis is a horrible food. That's why I made a special form of it, Holly's Kryptonite. Mm. But I mentioned your, your grandfather being a minister, if you learned anything from there. Because when you're a minister, there's, there's, a, sense, uh, there's a sense of performance there. There's a sense of, of storytelling. Yeah, uh, but by the time I was, you know, kind of aware of the world, he wasn't, you know, doing the uh, ministry anymore. I had an uncle that did, and, you know, saw a few of his sermons, and then but I never saw my grandfather do it. He was uh, pretty old at the time and had retired. Hmm. Anyway, but there is a sense of performance. You're right. I mean, if you're up in front of people, you've got to find ways to entertain them. I, I find that when I perform, I naturally fall into the voices of the characters. I, it, it's natural for me. That's one of my favorite characters. This villain, uh, Harry Headbutt, who is based directly on the cop in the Da Vinci Code when I read that character I thought this cop is just awful the first thing he does is he tampers with evidence and then he goes after the wrong guy when anybody uh, there's no other way to say this anybody with a IQ about the melting point of helium would say wait a minute there's something unusual going on here but no this guy wants to go after the hero it's but uh, Harry Headbutt is kind of like the Hulk as a bad guy, as a bully, you know. Harry Rob Bank! Harry go buy steak dinner, get girlfriend, and Harry not leave tip at restaurant! <laughs> and Holly regularly butts heads with him, and in all every story but one, she always lays him out on <laughs> flat on his back. How do you uh, go about developing uh, perf uh, voices for different characters? Do you, do you feel like that that that's something you had to learn, or is that something you always done growing up? So, I, I've kind of done that all my life. When I when I'll I, you know I, they they had better commercials I think when I was a kid and diff, you know longer and more character in them, and I would do voices for my friends from some of the characters in those commercials. And when I'm doing characters now, I'll write the character, and sometimes the voice will come right away. Like the cafeteria lunch ladies in my story, The Malevolent Mystery Meat. Kind of based on those lunch ladies in The Simpsons, you know. Hey, here's your food, you know. So I have one fat one with a lower voice, and one skinny one with a higher voice. You know, they both kind of talk the same, and I'm thinking of those guys. Uh, the character uh, John Glutt. You've heard of John Galt from uh, this the story Atlas Shrugged. As comic book guy would say it, 
worst hero ever. This guy genocides a lot of humanity because he doesn't want to pay his taxes. So I decided I was going to express a little bit of my feelings about that sort of thing with a character, uh, John Glutt, who ended up looking like comic book guy in The Simpsons in my head. That's how he looks and that's how he sounds. And he was based loosely on the grandfather in The Da Vinci Code. He kind of morphed from kind of a regular guy to this loud and rude and very sexist type character. He, uh, in the storyline, he works with Holly. Holly's just thrilled that she gets this really talented artist to illustrate her stories. And then what happens is John Glutt gets into this uh, way of thought called, you know, not objectivism, I call it objectificationism. And what he does is he starts drawing Holly's uh, protagonist kind of a superheroine who becomes ruler of the earth and then realizes she's doing evil stuff and she wants to save the world instead even though the world hates her. But what happens in issue four is that on each succeeding page John Glutt has drawn this character, the overlady. He keeps drawing her breasts bigger and bigger and bigger on each succeeding page until when he gets to the double page spread in the middle of the comic book, Holly looks at that and spits her coffee halfway across the across her room and that's when she fired John and hired somebody else (laughs) (laughs) all right I think we reached that point uh, where I think we could listen to some of your stories you brought some here with with you yes I did this would take about uh, that's okay we got 10 or 11 minutes to read and what I'd like you to do is see if you can cue up uh, the song uh, Hungarian Rhapsody but you know the background of this story is I've always wanted to write a story of Holly kind of getting into an argument with her boyfriend's uh, Batmobile type car okay and th- what's the name of the story Super Holly Hansen in the Intellecta Rhapsody because right. this song is <laughs> the Hungarian Rhapsody most people are going to recognize it And this is dedicated to Bugs Bunny and Woody Woodpecker and Tom and Jerry who have all danced to this tune. Now imagine I'm on an open mic. That's kind of what I'm imagining now. The shoulder of Highway 101 South, 30 miles north of Seaside City, a Saturday, 11.32 a.m. Not again, whined Super Holly Hansen. Kerpow! went the ray gun barrel poking out of the intellect car's dashboard. Ouch! Holly's mighty superheroine face burned and itched and smoldered and shuddered. She knew how Daffy Duck's fate felt, face felt if Elmer Fudd's shotgun was from the planet Krypton. She jerked her fist out of the sparking hole she'd punched into the dashboard and growled, You started it! Negative, the intellect car monotoned. You made improper gestures. The dashboard's morphing displays and glowing buttons coldly glared. How did her boyfriend Cal keep track of them when he drove this obnoxious car? Holly crossed her arms and slammed back into the driver's seat, no longer caring how its black leathery Kevlar deliciously caressed her thighs. I was pantomiming! How else do I drive you when you don't have a steering wheel or gas or brake pedals? Input correct command codes. 
My powers are flight, super strength, and super telekinesis, not carburetor telepathy. From the passenger seat, Cal the intellectual critbert spoke spine-tingling grim. Holly Hansen. So formal. Cal must be angry, but not half as angry as Holly was. She faced her caped and cowled boyfriend. What? Cal tapped, tapped, tapped a fingertip on his black armored temple. You damaged my car's telepathy circuit. Intellecticar, estimated self-repair time. 39 minutes, 17 seconds. Holly snapped. How long to repair your manners? Manners circuits undamaged. Your manners are imperfect. Cal spoke in that lofty, oh-so-patient teacher tone that Holly oh-so-hated. You insisted on this. You wanted to drive, as you said, your dark and smart intellect a Batmobile. Stay out of this, yelled Holly, slamming her fist down for emphasis. All in an instant, the car roof opened. The passenger seat rocketed skyward. Hol Cal yelled, Holly! Up, up, and far away, a parachute opened. Holly lifted her fist. A big red button smirked up at her. Why didn't you tell me about the ejector seat? You didn't ask. The driver door slid open. This driving lesson can serve no further purpose. Your vocal command access is terminated. Goodbye. I don't like you either. Holly jumped out, then scrunched back from wind-blasting freeway cars. Then her Wonder Woman-esque e-bracelet buzzed. She tapped its, its display. Hello? A hologram of a tall, lean, gray-haired army general popped out and barked, Get your butt off the road! It's already off, Uncle Pops. Why, huh? The ground was earthquaking. Pops' face filled the hologram. The Rocky Gang stole a giant super tank. They're on 101, headed for Seaside City. Holly snapped to attention. This is a job for Super Holly. A metallic mound appeared on the horizon. It's a job for the army. We've set a roadblock. We tried sending jets, but Rocky shot them down. Holly stared at the mix of army tank and giant cyborg rhinoceros rumbling toward her like an express train from hell. You won't turn my uncle into a tank tread waffle. No! Holly! It's got... Holly hung up. She strutted to the middle of the road, faced north, planted her feet, and readied her super-powered right hook, patent pending. A loudspeaker blared from the tank. It's that super dame! Blaster, boys! A dopey thug voice. You got it, boss! Blorp! Green slime drenched Holly head to foot. That sickly fishy smell. She fell to her knees. Her kryptonite! Green lutefisk! Vroom! Rumble bumble thumple! Giant tag tread smushed Holly ow, oof, 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 two feet into the road. Ow, 200 tons right on Holly's beaky super nose. Yeah, yeah, Rocky got you good. Yeah, yeah. Assistant circuits activated. A cold, snaky robotic arm wound around Holly's waist, lift her, lifted her limp body from her superheroine-shaped pothole and plopped her into the driver's seat. The end of the arm morphed into a rubbery sucker disc. <laughs> said Holly as the sucker smushed all over her face. <laughs> the sucker retracted from her face and hovered over Holly's chest. I am programmed to ask permission before touching a woman. Go ahead, but no wisecracks. Acknowledged, I am not programmed for wisecracks. 
Holly tried not to squirm. It's just a machine, just a machine. Can't you go any faster? We have to stop that tank before it squashes my uncle. The sucker slid up and down her arms. <laughs> Negative. Vocal command access not granted. Despite that sucker sucking up and down her legs, Holly's face flushed cold. No, I need your help. Negative. Awaiting designated driver. Holly looked out the windshield, imagining cars and civilians being mashed even now. Cal won't get back in time. I have to stop that tank. Negative. Green Ludifus can kill you. I cannot allow humans to be harmed. More humans will be harmed if I don't save them. You can shield me. Holly blinked back tears. I'm just one human. That tank could smash hundreds. Please help me stop it. I beg you. You would risk your life for others? Yes. Please. Analyzing. The dashboard mosaic flashed and blinked faster and faster. You would save your fellow humans from termination at the risk of your own termination. You are a hero. Vocal command access. And the words spelled out on the dashboard. Granted. Holly sat back in the seat. She braced herself. Then let's get Rocky. Acknowledged. Zero to three hundred miles per hour in two seconds. Holly slammed six inches into the driver's seat. The intellectic car weaved and leaped past broken cars without slowing an iota. Holly tumbled into passenger seat, back seat, driver's seat, upside down, right side up. Apologies. Inertial dampener offline. Shall I pull over? No! Oof! I can take it! Ah! What the frack? A dozen cars tumbled toward the windshield like giant dice. Open the roof and grab me! Acknowledged. Holly stood up, her long blonde hair and red cape whipping in the wind. The robot arm held her legs, steady as a rock. She reached out, her giant blue telekinetic hand shot out and caught cars. What's going on up there? Telescopic view activated. A hologram formed before Holly, showing the super tank missling down the road and knocking cars aside. Get off the road! Bump! Get off the road! Bump! This is Rocky's road! Hey, Rocky made a funny Rocky road! Laugh, boys! <laughs> You're funny, boss. Holly set cars aside. Any cars ahead? Negative. Just one school bus filled with little children. Holly gasped. He wouldn't dare. The tank pulled up beside the bus. Rocky doesn't like kids. Bump! The bus fell. Kids screamed. Ah! Holly yelled, go! Acknowledged. Zoom! Oof! Holly almost got super whiplash. The intellectual car dashed under the side of the 45 degree tilted bust, and Holly pushed it upright again, and bus filled, bus windows filled with cheering kids. Yay, it's super Holly! Wow, that car's so cool! And a tiny little girl hopped up and down and shrieked, Punch him right in the mush! I will! Pursuit speed! Acknowledged. Zoom! A speeding, shiny Titanic tank loomed a hundred yards ahead. Holly yelled, Hey, Rocky! Hey! Intellect a loudspeaker activated. Thanks. Ready for round two, Rocky? Rocky doesn't like being followed. Blaster, boys! You got it, boss! Three missiles fired. Holly punched them. Pow! Biff! Bam! And stuck out her tongue. Nyeh, nyeh, you missed me! The tank's shiny butt loomed larger. Nobody nyeh nyeh's Rocky! Feed her some lead, boys! You got it, boss. Warning, coming in range of Ludafisk weapon. Holly yelled, Yes, prep the intellectic court so when... 
A hailstorm of bullets bounced off superheroine and supercar. Holly spat out a mouthful of lead. Patooey! Your strategy is calculated, aimed, and ready. Holly wanted to kiss the intellect of dashboard. I love you. Acknowledged. Roadblock contact in 40 seconds. Holly snarled. Turn around, Rocky, or are you scared of a girl? The tank didn't slow. Rocky doesn't listen to dames. Rocky squats his shoulders. Yeah, yeah. The roadblock was dead ahead. Pops, the soldiers. No, Holly screamed. Hey, Rocky. Humphrey Bogart had more gangster in his little finger than Edward G. Robinson had in his entire body. But, but nobody says that about Rocky's idol. The tank's top turned. Load the green stuff, boys. You got it, boss. The tank's main gun aimed right between Holly's eyes. Rocky's gonna get ya in five, four, three. A gun barrel stuck out the intellect car's hood. Pow! Two! A cork clogged the tank's gun. Fork! One! Kapoom! Green goo shout out the tank's every crevice. Crevice. Blurp. Rocky screamed, No! No! Rocky doesn't like Lodafisk! Henchman held, Distinct! <laughs> we quit! And the tank ground to a halt a few feet from Uncle Pops and the Steadfast Soldiers. Wow. Yeah. I always wanted to write that particular story of a car chase, and I think the inspiration was it, for it was an old Woody Woodpecker cartoon where he was uh, thinking about buying a piano. He was in a music shop, and this gangster comes in with his men, and he's got this big sack of money, and he hides in the piano and aims a gun at Woody Woodpecker and says, Play! And Woody Woodpecker plays that Hungarian Rhapsody, and a cop comes in looking for the guys, and what he's trying to say the gangster's in there and the gangster keeps aiming the gun well they end up being ch you know, in a car chase on the road and Woody Wickbecker's playing that song the entire time during the chase wow how, how do you go about uh, adding that dimension of music to your storytelling I mean do you, do you have a music in mind already when you're usually writing these stories or do you have to sync it up uh, I generally had that in mind, which was a problem with some of my early stories because when I started out with this, I wasn't even thinking about this thing called uh, copyright. The song we played now is free on YouTube to use any way you want, so I have no qualms about using it here. But if you use something from Star Wars or Star Trek or whatever, maybe play it at an open mic, but... Not on a podcast, and not <laughs> if I want to sell it. No way. Right. <laughs> but music has been a huge inspiration to me for writing particular chapters, like uh, Holly's big fight with a bunch of uh, super soldiers under the control of this mind-controlling bimbo character I have called Bunny Bubbles. Well, we got time for one more story. Hmm. Are you interested in uh, giving our listeners uh, another story? Um... You know what? I can do the end of... Uh... This is a story that I'm going to put out on my website. I uh, There should be a link to it on the web somewhere, but I'll put it on my website. This is the story that I wrote and won first prize in the um, 
audio storytelling division for the San Mateo County Fair last year. We were discussing it earlier and uh, it was inspired by having by observing my two nephews many years ago when they were little kids how the older brother acted how the younger brother acted and the same thing with my cousin's kids and then he has two dogs Tucker and Wrigley and they have two kind of distinct personalities so the setup to this story is I'm gonna read most of the end of the story at this point um, there's a school Tucker and Wrigley are two boys with uh, puppy powers Tucker's in fourth grade Wrigley is in second grade and they're <laughs> What's you know, puppy it's power? Hold on. They, they have doggy powers doggy you powers. know they can run very fast they can bark and chew they can you know you'll, you'll get an idea of what their powers are when awesome. we get through here Got yeah it. but two you know boys kind of act like dogs sometimes let's face it even, guys are dogs girls even are cats. even men act like dogs sometimes yeah absolutely I've been there oh yeah all right. Just... Well, at this point in the story, uh, what's happened is the evil lunch ladies um, fed this horrible mystery meat to the kids. And it turns out that the reason she fed it to them is that it allows them to suck superpower out of the superpower kids and store it in a barrel. And it's kind of like a MacGuffin, you know, it's kind of a... They're going to store this barrel. They're going to do something with the superpower. It doesn't really matter. Sell it on the black market, blah, blah, blah. Holly tasted the, the mystery meat, too. So she was vulnerable to this race. She tried to defend all the kids. But the lunch lady realized that Holly has more superpower than anybody. So they're going to kidnap her. Holly's been knocked out by the ladies, by sucking power out of her. And they've uh, hauled Holly and the barrel full of power out of the lunchroom and Tucker and Wrigley were trapped in a spaghetti net but they chewed their way out you know they got out of it plop Holly lay on top of the barrel the lunch ladies rolled them out the front door they sang no more cooking no more lunch no more bratty noontime crunch bite 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 chew 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 rip Tucker and Wrigley jumped free of the net they dashed out of the cafeteria Tucker sniffed 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 car exhaust, dog pee, grass, boogery mystery meat, yuck, and strawberry scent from a white van barreling down Main Street. Tucker looked at Wrigley. Sick him! Tucker's feet scrabbled on the road. Rocky Wrigley ran on all fours, passing cars. Tucker did too. Katie Girl was right about that. The skinny lunch lay squinted from the van's driver's side mirror like a rat from its hole. Tucker ran faster and yelled, you're bad, 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 bad. Wrigley's head bobbed left and right as he called to dogs on sidewalks and in cars. Roo! Bark, bark, bark! Roo! Beep, beep, honk, honk went cars. Grrr! went Tucker and Wrigley as they dodged. Tucker glued his eyes to the van and galloped harder. No, the van zoomed through an intersection just as the light turned red. Ruff, ruff! Tucker and Wrigley leaped over the intersection as a double doggy single bound. They slid on a bus hood, landed on the other side, and chased, chased, chased! Bark, 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 barked Wrigley at dogs in a park. They stood up like soldiers and joined the chase. Woof, 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 woof. Wee, woo, wee, woo. Cars pulled over and a cop car pulled up. Its passenger window rolled down and a cop yelled, Boys, get off the street. Tucker ran, ran, ran. Super Hollies <laughs> being kidnapped <laughs> in that white van. Help. Off the street now. The cop didn't hear. That stupid car bumped, bumped, bumped toward the sidewalk. A German shepherd stuck his face out the cop, cop car window and asked, Ruff? Tucker answered, Bark, bark, ruff. The police dog gasped. He turned to the cop. Bark, bark, ruff. 
The cop asked, Timmy fall down a well? The police dog pointed his nose at the white van and growled, Harley, Harley, point, 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 Harley. The cop gasped, I gotcha, partner. He pressed a button on the dashboard, calling all cars, Super Holly Hansen's being kidnapped, white van on Main Street passing six. I'm in pursuit with two doggy boys, and he looked in the van's rear window, in his rear window, a uh, hundred dogs are with him. Tucker ran, 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 ooh, tummy cramp and glass behind. Labs and beagles and poodles, oh my, ruff, ruff, ruff. Give Holly back. Woof, woof, woof. I'll bite your... Ooh, pit bulls use bad words. The van rear window opened. A gun barrel stuck out. Blorch! The cop car slowed down, covered in gravy. The police dog leaped out and joined the chase. Bark, 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 bark! Stop in the name of the law! Boom, 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 went meatball bullets. Tucker and Wrigley dodged. Yike, yike, yike! A few dogs were hit. Tucker's limbs pumped, pumped, pumped. His heart thumped, thumped, thumped. The van swerved onto the highway entrance ramp. Tucker and Wrigley and Dog Army hounded after it. Bark, 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 bark. Wee woo, wee woo. More cop cars joined the chase. Tucker was tired, hungry, closing in. Oh no, two wings with jet engines stuck out of the sides of the van. Flame roared out. Roar! And the van sped up. A cop car pulled up. A blue arm thrust out, holding beef jerky. Tucker and Wrigley gobbled it. Super doggy digestion turned fuel to energy. They gobbled faster, faster, faster. The van's tires left the road. Tucker chomped into the rear bumper, dragged his feet. His super canine neck strained as he pulled. Rrr. Wrigley chomped in two. A hundred dogs chomped under their hires and wings and bumper and Tucker's pants and pulled. Cop cars bashed into the van's wings. Jets sputtered and died. The van hit the road, slowed, slowed, and stopped. Tucker let go. Ick, patooey, grease and grind, yuck. Wrigley's tongue stuck out. Ruff! Best doggy tug of war ever! I'd like to go a little bit further and tell you about a particular line I have in here. Tucker bit the door handle and yanked off the door of the van. Crunch! Near the barrel, Holly was still passed out and still pretty. <laughs> now, when I added now that and still pretty line, I just ad libbed that at one open mic. You know, when I got to the point, I had just written, uh, you know, that Holly was still passed out. And for some reason, I added the line, and still pretty. And there was a girl up, you know, a young lady up in the front of the audience. And she looks at me and goes, aww. I thought, that's how I know when a line's good, when I get that type of reaction. <laughs> well, David Strobe, it's been a pleasure having you here. Uh, where can people check out more of your, um, well, writing? I would go to Dave M strum.wordpress.com d-a-v-e-m-s-t-r-o-m dot wordpress.com and where can people check you out uh, performing your stories well I show up sometimes at Red Rock um, that's in Mountain View for those yeah. listeners who are interested yeah and I might once in a great while, I'll go to the one in downtown San Jose. Uh, what's the name of that? It's on uh, First Street, I think. It must there's... be for Scotty. Yes, I've been there once or twice. Where there's open mics, I'll try to be there. <laughs> well, thank you for coming, Dave. Wow, time went by fast, didn't it? Sure did. And um, it went good, right? You're good? I guess so. We're shaking hands? Yes. Awesome. That indicates that we're doing good, and thank you for coming once again been a pleasure. Thank you.